Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the studios of Chico Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. But if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely, remote hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week I share a devotional inspired by the name of one of the cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. The photo accompanying this week's devotional is The Plan. This cross image is quite unique for several reasons, all of which were out of my control, except that I chose to go up to that majestic ridge that night. And as such, the first aspect to comment on is that the image was shot well after sunset, yet there was still enough light for some color in the sky, but the image does feel like it is about to go into full night. The second aspect is that there is a bright star in the upper left-hand side of the photo. The luminosity is that it is a little brighter than a normal star. But because there is still color in the sky, one gets the sense that this is the first star of the night. The third aspect is that there is a light streak, albeit ever so faint, that runs from the lower right-hand side of the star and runs diagonally directly towards the center of the cross. Simply amazing and simply not me. It was as if the star is pointing directly to the cross. Now, before you accuse me of photoshopping this, allow me to remind everyone that this collection was shot between 1998 and the year 2000, meaning the entire body of work was shot using 35mm film. In other words, the light streak is actually on the negative. Now, it might have been a series of dust bits that just so happened to line up in a certain way, or a smudge on the lens, either on the front side or the interior, or it is a God thing. But if that's the case, it was a very happy accident. Now, the illusion lends itself to the name, the plan, in that the star can be interpreted as the star of Bethlehem, announcing the birth of Jesus, who was the Messiah, born to die on this cross and to be raised out of the tomb. Which leads me to my final aspect about this, the plan image. The cross in this image is sitting atop a hill of rocks, a mix of rock and earth. But the dirt is fashioned in such a way that it leads a natural or accidental path from where I'm standing, winding up to the cross. If that was not enough, in one section of the lower image, where there's a whole cross-section of boulders, there is an illusion of an open tomb. It has to do with being so dark out and the mix of light and shadows 
creating what looks like an open cave amongst the pile of boulders. Simply amazing. In my humble opinion, it is one of the most divinely appointed images in the cross collection, even more than, say, the lightning shots. Why do I say this? Because this image contains all three major aspects of Jesus Christ. The star of Bethlehem, proclaiming his birth, the cross of the crucifixion, and the empty tomb of his resurrection. It illustrates the entire message of the gospel in one image. And as I said, this image, probably more than any other cross in my collection, illustrates the plan of God of all of humankind across all of human history. That he was sending his son to be born to minister and to die and to be resurrected for all of us. It also implies that no matter what changes and challenges we face in our lives, our family, our church, or in society, the story, the purpose, and the impact of the cross stays the same. In other words, while everything around our lives are in flux, constantly changing, the cross never changes. The principles precepts, and promise of the cross never moves. And it will not be moved, even while the tectonic plates beneath our temporal life keep shifting. The bedrock of Golgotha is solid, steadfast, and sure. When the events in your life begin to shake your footing, your foundation, and even your faith return to the cross. And it makes me think, If history, as we know it from the Garden of Eden, was always leading to the cross to save the entirety of humankind, then what about us individual Christians? What is the plan for each of our lives? I mean, each of us have a different destiny in God and for the kingdom of heaven based on our innate abilities, our innate or worked-upon talents, and the environment of our upbringing— right? The family we grew up in. But what might be the common denominator plan for every individual Christian? Well, the plan from the beginning, in my opinion, was for mankind and for the life towards an abundant life, and an individual stems from the message of the cross. It reminds me of a quote from Alexander McLaren that goes like this, The cross is the center of the world's history. The incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of our Lord are the pivot round which all the events of the ages revolve. God's plan for mankind is the story wrapped up in the life of Jesus, detailed in the Bible and beyond. We are told in John 21, 25, that Jesus did many things, and if every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So much surrounds that holy night with the king of the Jews and the prince of beasts being born in a dirty, smelly, and frigid cattle stall, with the Christmas star appearing directly above Bethlehem, and how it paralyzed the poor shepherds with amazement. And yet the event was so powerful that ripples emanating out in both direction. You had the angel Gabriel appearing to Elizabeth and Zechariah, Joseph, and of course Mary, proclaiming the Immaculate Conception. Before that, there were prophets like Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, that described the Christ to come. And of course, there was the star and the stars themselves that predicted and guided the Magi 
to Jesus. And before that, Jesus was with the Father. Philippians 2.6 makes it clear that as the Son of God, he existed from eternity past. Jesus said to God in John 17.24 that God the Father loved him before the foundation of the world, receiving the worship of the heavenly host. His birth was just a precursor to the covert mission of the cross, resurrection, and ascension. As he reaches 30 years of age, we follow him through three years of ministry, miracles, and manifestations, leading us to the sacrifice Jesus allowed himself to become on the cross. And yet, the passion and sacrifice of that fateful day at Calvary simply started more ripples. The Bible tells us that Jesus went down and took back the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He was resurrected with subatomic power, and yet the plan was not complete. The resurrection started a 40-day period in which Jesus ministered to his followers and inhabitants of that region. And even though it seems like it, as the disciples witnessed his miraculous ascension in his resurrected body, that was not the fulfillment of the plan. Not completely. This is because while he sits at the right hand of his father, biblical prophecy states that he will come back to rapture his people during the end days of Armageddon. As you can see, Jesus is the thread that holds all of humanity together. And more than that, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is alive outside our understanding of time and space. Since he was a human, there is nothing that you will go through that he does not understand and empathizes with you about. Seek time with Jesus, asking him to dwell in your heart and to lead you to fulfill the unique destiny God is calling you to. The same God that revealed his nature on that first good Friday. The foundation of all believers is Jesus Christ. As we mature in our faith, we become more and more like him, sharing his characteristics. The traits, the common denominator that I was asking about earlier, that makes us alike are those attributes that we have attained by virtue of the fact that we are all in his family and are being conformed to his image. Romans 8.29 Each person must come to faith in Jesus on their own terms as an individual. Once a believer, however, he is part of a whole, a part of the body of Christ. The Bible refers to this whole in many ways. Galatians 3.26-28 to 28 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Bible calls us followers, followers of his Son, as a family, children of God and brothers and sisters, a flock, God's elect, the church, the body of Christ, and the bride of Christ. Our commonality is based in him. There are some common traits among true believers everywhere. One is love. Remembering that the breath of God is in everyone we meet, and that God loves them, especially in that God would that none would perish. And if we love in Christ those that we meet, then we'd do and say things that would help lead them to accept or maybe to stay on, stay in 
the path with God. Another is empathy. I observed incredible sacrificial empathy in the part of Christians throughout the world. Some I've witnessed personally, some in movies like St. Dr. Moscato or the movie about Mother Teresa, and others that I've read about like Christian missionaries, Christian doctors, Christian saints, and devout laymen and laywomen. Another is joy. See John 16, 24, 17, 13, and 1 John 1, 4. True joy in the Lord transcends any culture, economy, family makeup, or situation in life. My mom chronically worked two jobs as a single mom, yet she never went on welfare. And no matter how things looked, how tough things got, how financially destitute we would find ourselves in sometimes, her faith provided a pleasant disposition and a radiant joy. Another one is brotherhood or sisterhood. Now, no matter where I worship, I feel at home. I know that I am with family. The sense of belonging is immediate and travels with me as I visit other congregations. Another is sacrifice for others. Look up 2 Timothy 2.3. Now, many of my brothers and sisters truly endure hardship, which takes many forms, persecution, deprivation, misunderstanding, physical ailments, family trials, and many more. The common thread of sacrificial love amongst believers is that the hardship is understood in the context of God's plan to use them for His glory, always being others-oriented. Another trait is to be open, meaning you're teachable. There's a constant delight in encountering believers who are eager to learn more about Christ and apply what they have learned. Another is an exercise of spiritual gifts. The common denominator of all of us is Christ. But he has equipped each of us with a unique set of qualities, gifts, and talents to be able to serve him and the kingdom of heaven and to uniquely share the good news of the gospel. Another trait is desire to glorify God. With the Holy Spirit as our solid foundation, Believers work at removing sin in so that their lives will glorify God. Collectively, as one in Christ, we are the answer to his prayer, John 17. And when we obey his command to love him and love others, it helps the world see that Jesus is in us. Another is prayerfulness. A spiritual connection is available between God and man. A two-way communication in which we not only talk with God, but listen as well. As John Michael put it in one of his songs, Renounce All, I believe was the title, it goes like this, or at least in part, Prayer is the flower of gentleness, freedom from anger within. Prayer is the fruit of joy and thankfulness, the remedy for despair and sin. Prayer is the highest intention, the ascent of the soul unto God, the passion's full affection, the deliverance of demons all. Prayer is the state of dispassion, detached from anger and desire, which by virtue and pure loving transports the soul to God. Renounce all to gain everything. You will then be free of all things. Again, a common denominator of all of this is the important aspect of gratitude and an appreciative attitude to and in life. 
What I mean is that none of us deserves God's grace and salvation. We should live and move in this paradigm. However, some of us are comparative shoppers of how to stay thankful or in a gratitude-based perspective. Some might say that their child acts a bit rebellious about music genre they like to listen to, but then a neighbor's child just inked a new tattoo on their body. Or maybe someone complains about their boss, but then you learn that your cousin was laid off. Maybe someone complains about chronic back pain, but then learn a good friend has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. I can appreciate where they're coming from. However, you can become better at this if you focus on it. Chuck Swindoll is quoted as saying, Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you choose to react to it. One aspect of the good news of the gospel is to learn to be content in whatever situation you find yourself in. Maybe it is because of all the things that I've been through, but really, I don't recall ever feeling sorry for myself, for anything. Not for being born to a heroin addict or a pair of them. Not for being beaten by my mom's drug-dealing boyfriend or having a pathetically alcoholic father. Or say, when I lost loved ones, like when my wife died of cancer. Nor when I lost a job along the way. Nothing. Now, some may say, sure, you're good at compartmentalizing. And maybe they are right. But I have never noticed myself comparing my situation to someone else. I'm simply happy to be alive, even though I'm looking forward to moving on to the majesty of God's presence in heaven. It may sound weird, but honestly, I simply see my days, every day and most times of each day, as a gift from God. Okay, okay, that sounds like a bumper sticker, but it does help to know that if you have sought God's will, then where you are is where you are meant to be at. It helps to know that if you have sought God's will, that you can have his perfect peace. The way I look at life is that this is my day, a unique day, a day that only I can live. I am in a certain time zone, a certain longitude and latitude. I live in a specific city on a certain street, having been raised originally by particular parents, having grown up with a certain mix of extended and eclectic family. Even though I share a certain calendar with the rest of humanity and a certain clock with everybody, only I can live this day the way I can. And not just because of the reasons I just mentioned, but all that I just said is affected by the choices I make along the way. Choices making my day even more unique, more exclusive to me. It will be full of positives and negatives, ups and downs, happiness and sadness. I've touched on this aspect of life in previous episodes. How everything that makes us and everything we see, hear, smell, feel, and taste is, at the atomic and subatomic levels, made up of positives and negatives, made up of waves. So while some see themselves as thankfulness comparative shoppers, I call myself a thankfulness relative shopper, as in everything is relative. And in that perspective, I have choices of how to react to each moment of every day. For me, I set intentions that I can take advantage of positive opportunities in my day and learn from negative situations. And for those who can hear what I'm saying, good can come out of any part of bad, meaning at any point of any sine wave, there has to be a charge. A sine wave can only 
exist and work by having both positive and negative polarity essentially at the same time. Selah. But to be fair, there are a few moments of comparativeliness, if that's a word, times that are so profound I cannot help but remember it. And that is when I meet someone in the middle or the back half of a nasty divorce. I quickly realized some of these people were in much more pain than I grew through as a young widower, especially those who were betrayed by unfaithfulness or physical and or emotional abuse or when kids are involved. I had a friend back then who was wounded so deeply by his wife cheating on him. He was all tied up in knots of questions like, what if he could have done this or treated her better that way or something or anything? I recall the actual words in my head talking to myself that, Huh, my divorce friend needs much more sympathy, or empathy, really, than being widowed. And when you lose a loved one, especially quickly, as in my case, there's no second guessing. I was powerless to stop it. And again, in my case, we had no kids yet, so I was able to move on much faster, way faster than most divorced people. And for some with kids involved, they never really, truly are, are able to move on. Instead of feeling sorry for myself, I get a significant dose of that from others, meaning when I became a widower, I recall receiving lots of sympathy from people and even some empathy from a few others, all of which were most often unsolicited. But I appreciated it and I would say thanks and then look for a way out of the conversation because I don't want to dwell on that. I simply live in a way that I strive to go through whatever I have to and to learn from everything I have during the various moments of my day. Now I have multiple to-do lists, and there's never not something to do. But instead of getting frustrated or discouraged when a day flies by without much getting done, I give it to God, asking Him to open doors in His will and timing. I just, with God's help, get as much done as I can with the time I have each day and leave the rest to the Lord. This perspective helps me to stay led and not driven, and not giving up when things look like all is lost. I call this the Candyland effect. Do you remember that game? When I was a kid, I had friends who wanted to quit when it looked like they were about to lose. But just like in life, when I have a friend stressing about a really bad-looking situation, I like to say, why are you worrying at what not has happened yet? God can get you out of this situation if you trust Him. You never know how it will eventually end up. Like in Candyland, you may be way back on the trail, and it looks like your opponent only needs a few turns to win, and then they pick you know, a peanut or a gumdrop card, and then you immediately find yourself in the lead. It can happen, and thus, there is always hope. I had a business owner sharing with me how bad his numbers were at the moment, how his company is bleeding money, and that without a quick turnaround, he will have to close the door and get a day job. He was very troubled. I said, well, if you are hemorrhaging, find a way to get a tourniquet on the wound, give the business into the hands of God, then get to work and trust Him for the turnaround. Remember, God is still in control, and prayer changes things. If you honor God with your life, and if God wills your business to turn around, it will. If not, then God has a plan that you just don't see yet. God made the vast expanse of the universe, let alone this little speck of dust we live on. So why is it so hard about having faith that God can bring in new clients at a higher rate right away? I contend God can and will, if it be his will. Some stress about the events of their day, but why? I had another friend very anxious about a job interview, and I said, why? Why not be yourself? 
If this job is willed by God for you, then you could bomb the interview and still get hired, or ace the interview and not get hired. The proper perspective is you do not want to work at a company if it is not God's will for you to work there. But yes, I understand things happened all the time, and it can be small or significant. It could be a cell phone screen cracking, a flat tire, a water pipe bursting and flooding the house, a speeding ticket, being laid off, or a friend receiving a bad health prognosis. When I find myself in a challenge, I strive to keep my mind stayed on Christ versus worrying about the potential implications. No, I am not perfect, but overall, and what I have learned through what I have grown up through, for example, if I can't find my keys, I will not allow myself to worry about a bunch of worst-case possibilities, none of which have happened yet. I do what I observe my mom doing when I was being raised, and her example of making purposeful prayers, asking God to help you, asking God to help me find and then think, think and pray, pray and think, mulling over the situations and new approaches to the situation and ultimately trusting in the providence of God's hand in my life. And who knows, maybe that delay in, say, leaving the house at that moment when I couldn't find the keys prevented me from being in an accident, maybe being hit by a red light runner at a certain time and distance from the house. Or if you have a slow leak in a tire and you have to go to the tire shop, maybe you'll get the opportunity to share the gospel with the shop worker. Please don't get me wrong. I can still get flustered and uh, upset, especially if I'm exhausted when burning the candle at both ends. But I pray fully intend to put it to bed quickly, so to speak, and give it to God. I try not to dwell on these situations, but what I strive to do or intend to do is to stay aware that good can come out of most every single situation in life. And the situation can be a part of or leading up to a divine appointment. And no matter how bad the situation, to meditate on what I could learn from the situation and how I managed or processed it. So at the very least, I can learn about something, about myself. And yes, for me, contemplating on questions like, did I rely on my own strategy? Or did I really depend on God? Did I try to control things? Or did I give it all to God? Letting go and letting God? I found that when I give up control, trusting in and seeking God's grace, that's when things work out the best and my peace increases. Let's look at Jesus' example for a moment. Remember the story of him and the Samaritan woman at the well? Jesus started talking to her about him giving her water that shall be a well springing up into eternal life. What is of note to me, Jesus was always sharing his spiritual cup with others. Look at all the healings he did. Look at all the miracles, blessings, and gifts he gave to those who sought him. Jesus was always pouring out his cup into the cup of others. Well, those that were open to it or seeking it. It occurs to me as his disciples, we should be doing the same. Jesus had a cup that he shared with those around him during his life and ministry, but he also had a very specific cup that was given to him by the father that only he could or would have to drink. It was a cup that he did not want to drink of. During the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pleaded with the Father for God to take the cup from him. Yet in doing so, he asked for God's will, and he gave us the gifts of salvation and eternal life. Jesus poured out his overflowing cup unto us, even when he gave his blood and sacrifice for us. We must drink of that cup as he drank of daily. We have been 
given a wonderful gift in receiving the Holy Spirit, look at the tremendous blessings we have been given, most of all an understanding of His plan for mankind and His truth for our individual lives. His way of life, living, doing, acting, and being, is it not a blessing for us to know these things? I wonder, how much are we sharing this blessing with others every day? What example are we setting? What light are we being to the world by letting that living water bubble up and out of us on a daily basis? Are we drawing from his well daily? Then pouring it into the cup of others as we interact with them, just as Jesus did? Like the psalmist, Psalms 23, does our cup overflow with thanksgiving, joy, and deep appreciation to our Father and to Jesus so that others can see that clearly? In these dark and uncertain times when people so desperately need hope as we go about our day, let us do as Jesus did. When our cup runs over, fill someone else's cup. It is simply our duty. No, our joy as we fulfill the Great Commission in the everyday moments of our everydays. Might I encourage you to start living this soul-hydrating process today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program heard every week on Chico Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this devotion's image, The Plan, Along with my other perspirations, then check out Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. And if you would like to learn about the Cross products, hear other Cross podcasts, then log on to my site, RobbieHolt.com. That is R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T.com.